As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. But now for today's show. In this series, C.S. Lewis expert Professor Alistair McGrath is delving into the Space Trilogy, arguably one of Lewis's lesser-known works of fiction. We'll be exploring the three books in the trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra and That Hideous Strength. Alistair, let's talk for a little bit about education um, because there's there's a group at Bracton College, one of the sort of fictitious elements of the book, um, who are called the progressive element. I mean, do we know if they reflect the views of any particular group of people or philosophy that Lewis would have been familiar with at the time? Well, elements of their individual thought would have been widespread at the time. Um but not generally in society, more in a kind, in a kind of the, the social elites, which argued that in effect, the solution to wars, for example, or to um, population explosion had to be scientific in nature. Alongside that, of course, there were those who were arguing for the social redirection of humanity through programs of conditioning, for example, which would mean that they would stop behaving in certain ways. Or, you know, we've talked already about the idea of um, uh, prison as a way of, in effect, rehabilitating people or redirecting them rather than punishing them. And Lewis was particularly concerned about that. But I think that there's a broader agenda here, which is that of the social and scientific redirection of humanity. And uh, Lewis is engaging with this. Now, he does it not in a precise way, you know, in effect, identifying one particular person who takes one particular view, but rather as personalizing these as represented within NICE. And are there particular moments when Lewis is critiquing the academy or, I guess, even education more generally? And, and if that is the case, why is he doing that? Well, we have to bear in mind that Lewis's experience at Oxford University was not entirely happy and that um, we know from some correspondence that he didn't have a very high view of many members of the senior common room at Magdalen College, which, of course, he knew very well. And very often, um, when you look at the NICE, you, you, you can perhaps see uh, Lewis 
um, picking up on people he knew and disliked in Morden College Senior Common Room. And Lewis tends to depict these as men. That's a very important point. These, these scientists are men. Very often they are bumbling, they are socially inadequate, but the key point is very often they are simply unable to see what the outcomes of their ways of thinking would be. So Lewis Hank is, is raising the question of whether the academy is able to police itself, whether actually there's, there's this sense of unaccountability to institutions like NICE for the programs that they are introducing, which they say will make things better. But Lewis is just saying actually it might make things worse and uncontrollable. So there's a really significant agenda being raised here, I think. I mean, he says of Mark, one of the characters, his education had had the effect of making things that he read and wrote more real to him than things that he saw. Is Lewis trying to say anything in particular there? I mean, what does he mean by that? What he's getting at, I think, is a trend he saw in the sociology of his day, where basically a sociology might simply be descriptive, trying to figure out what's happening and um, um, how you might theoretically accommodate this. But of course, if you are driven by a social theory, for example, Marxism, then its categories, in effect, shape the way you see society. And thus, for, for Marx, for example, and Lewis clearly was very much aware of this, for Marx, you were able to see class, various sociological categories, as real things, which very often took precedence over the real lives of people. So, in effect, it became, if you like, the categorization of humanity, which, in effect, abolished humanity in terms of these social categories. And Lewis there, you know, really was trying to make a point that very often social theories um, make us see things in terms of categories rather than as individual human beings. That, I think, is the point he's trying to bring out there. And one of the other things he says about Mark is that his education had been neither scientific or classical, merely modern. He was a man of straw. I mean, what does Lewis mean by modern? And I guess, why was he so anti-modern in this particular way? I think what, what Lewis is doing there is using the word modern to refer to up to date with the local, with the latest fashions in, for example, social theory and so on, <laughs> and hence is not rooted in classical culture. And one of the points that Lewis regularly makes is, look, we need to know the past because that helps us to engage the present and the future. And so what Lewis is here saying is that Mark is one of these people who knows nothing about the past, who doesn't value the classical tradition, and has bought into some recent fads in sociology, and as a result has no guiding principles to help him implement these properly. So he's saying here is somebody who does not have a deep root in scholarship, but is simply um, passing off uncritically the latest sociological theories. And is pragmatometry a real subject or is that just something Lewis has made up kind of for, for humorous effect, do you think? I think Lewis has made it up for humorous effect. Um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a nice term and, and it's all to do with, um, you know, um, thinking about how this might work out in real life. But it, it, it's Lewis, in effect, um, pointing out how easily a technical language sign away overwhelms reflective thought. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath.
We need to take a short break, but before we get back to the discussion, I want to invite you to take a look at a new unbelievable course. It's called Did It Really Happen? The Birth of Jesus. Perhaps you've been asked questions about the historicity of Jesus, or maybe you have questions of your own. We've made an in-depth course with experts and theologians diving into the historical accuracy and arguments for and against the Jesus birth narratives. You will be guided through all areas of the discussion with N.T. Wright, Emil Ewing, Daryl Bock and others. Check it out by visiting premierunbelievable.com slash courses. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Inti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. That's premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. Thank you. Alistair, we've discussed Lewis's apologetic writings at great lengths on this podcast, but does this book offer any insights or arguments in defence of the Christian faith, do you think? I think that that's a really important question. Um, Lewis very often will offer positive arguments for Christianity in many of his books. But in this one, I think it's a different kind of apology. If you like, it's a negative apologetic. It's saying, imagine a world in which there is no God and we simply pursue purely human goals like the quest for survival. What's the damage that inflicts on us? And again, there's one of Lewis's big themes that very often by, in effect, abolishing God, we abolish human nature as well. That's a very important point. So what Lewis is saying is, look, I've described to you a godless world. Do you really like it? Can you not see if you step into that world, you cannot live within it meaningfully? And so Lewis there, I think, is giving us a very helpful context within which to do apologetics by saying, if you don't have God, this is what you get. You happy with that? (laughs) Now, quite a few of the characters experience an interesting faith journey through this book. Obviously, we won't give away any of the plot line, but was Lewis trying to convey anything to his readers through this journey of faith? I think what Lewis is doing is pointing to characters who, in effect, come to realise that um, there is something more to the world than what this this very curious group of people have to offer. And Lewis, I think, is a little bit frustrating here because we have descriptions of hesitation, a sense of inadequacy, a sense of this isn't quite right, but he doesn't really follow through. For example, um, you know, does Jane really become a Christian? What's going on there? We don't, we don't really know. But I think what Lewis is trying to do is, is indicate the kind of hesitations or concerns that might emerge within such a community and perhaps say this could be useful apologetically in framing ways of 
ways of showing how a godless world actually makes it very, very difficult for us to be authentically human. And again, that's a key point. Lewis is really saying the abolition of God leads to the abolition of humanity, and therefore depicting a purely godless world is a very helpful way of, in effect, realizing how it is simply not a livable place for a reflective human being. I mean, because is it significant that it's the image of a crucifix that seems to have quite an impact on Mark in this respect? Well, it does. And it has that impact, I think, partly because of its strangeness. You know, it, it kind of way doesn't fit. And yet it does fit. I mean, I, I, it's difficult to express it. The point is it really suggests to him a different world, a different way of thinking, and one that seems strange, but actually might point to somewhere really interesting and existentially habitable. So it's a very interesting point. And again, Lewis is making the point, very often symbols say things that arguments don't. Well, and also, I guess there's the, the question of the suffering thing as well, because for Rev Strake, obviously, he's got lots of bizarre beliefs, but there is one point where he says, it wasn't in lecture rooms that I found the Lord Jesus, it was in the coal pits and beside the coffin of my daughter, which that seems to be a, a genuine encounter of Jesus. So I wonder if, is Lewis trying to make a point about suffering and how you actually might be able to find God in the midst of suffering? Well, I think that is right. I mean, if you think of the two examples Strike gives, uh, the coal pits, and suffering. You know, those are um, human deprivation and suffering, and neither of those really is seen as a, a sort of obvious place to look for God. Uh, but nevertheless, what Lewis is saying is that this man clearly found something in these situations, and that suggests that going beyond the material is actually quite important. So Lewis, again, may well be saying that there's a hint here that the inadequacy of a purely materialist approach uh, is suggested by Strike's uh, very interesting reflections on human impoverishment, and human suffering. Now, without giving away too much of the plot, Lewis seems to punish certain characters for their bad behaviour. Do you think he is enacting some sort of divine justice here? Well, that, that certainly would be one way of doing it. Maybe it's literary convention that the baddies sure. get punished, the goodies triumph. Um, but it's not quite clear who the goodies yes. are in this particular novel, I have to say. But I think, I think it's more likely that what Lewis is saying is... Um, these people simply brought their own punishment upon them. In other words, that this is the inevitable outcome of the kind of community, the kind of world I've described in this novel. It is dystopian. It falls to bits of its own accord. And therefore, these people are simply reaping their own harvest. And therefore, we need to realize that the problem is with them and with the methods they are developing, which ultimately reflect their rather flawed understandings of who human beings are and what human beings want. Well, and there's a moment in the book where it seems that innocent bystanders sort of get caught up in all of this. How are we supposed to feel about that? Well, I guess we feel really disturbed um, and um, want to ask questions. The question I think that Lewis probably wants us to ask is, look, um, here are these guys who've taken control of things. That's a big theme throughout that hideous strength, taking control. They've taken control and they've damaged people. And look at, look at the start of things happening and look what happens. The innocent people get, get um, damaged by this. I think that that's a key point to Lewis, you know, that in effect, very often some of these projects, which, which rely on social engineering or scientific development, 
end up by doing things which weren't intended or envisaged, but nevertheless happened. And that's an outcome of the process getting out of control. Well, and there's one character who I think appears to be rather unrepentant and seems to escape this divine punishment. I won't give away who it is, but do you think Lewis is trying to make a point here, perhaps about grace or, or something like that? I, I don't know. Um, one of the questions might be whether Lewis had a fourth novel in mind with that person in That's view. It. I honestly don't know. Um, what I would say is that it's not a simple closure in which all the baddies get punished or wiped out. You know, it's, it's, there's this question of things, but maybe there is this, this sense that actually in the empirical world, um, the good suffer, the bad so the bad flourish. I mean, that's a depiction of the world. It's it's an integral theme of, for example, the book of Ecclesiastes, where nothing seems to make sense unless you have a lens which allows you to do that. And maybe Lewis is just saying, I'm afraid that is the way life is. We have to learn to live with that. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And do register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time.